You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. With your Bibles open to John chapter 5, please turn to John chapter 5. And when you found your place, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin our study. Father, we are thankful to you for your word. It is holy. It is true altogether. It is unable to err and completely without error. And so we can trust you and what you have said. We know that you have given us your word not only to bring us to the point of salvation, but also to sanctify us as your people and to secure us everlastingly. We thank you that we can receive from you truth and that you feed our hungry souls. Our hearts rejoice together before your word, and we pray now that you would break open the bread of life and feed us from this book. We pray this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Well, if God, who is transcendent and exalted above all things and all people, who created the stars and the heavens and the earth and everything in them, If that God who is infinite in his perfections and infinite in his attributes and infinite in his person and completely transcendent, completely holy and completely other than we are, if that God were to decide to enter into his creation and to do what is seemingly impossible and that is to unite himself with man and become a man and to be confined to that human body in a temporal time and a temporal place, and were to live among us, and walk among us, and talk, and teach, and to do all of that for the sake of redeeming a lost humanity, if God were to do that, then everything in creation would testify to that reality. God would not leave himself without witness. The heavens, the earth, the prophets, the miracles, everything would scream to us that this had happened and that this is indeed what God has done. Now, as Christians, that is, in fact, exactly what we believe. We believe that our God, who is transcendent and infinite in all of his attributes, has indeed come into human history, entered his creation, and lived among us. And if it is true, then everything testifies to it. There is evidence on every page of Scripture. There is evidence from prophets. There is evidence from the way that he lived, from the way that he taught, the things that he did from the prophetic witness that would precede him, from the scriptures which would anticipate this. In fact, this individual who lived among us, Jesus, was so unlike any other human being that it was patently obvious to all who encountered him who he was and what he was. The evidence, in fact, was so overwhelming that belief was the most logical, rational, natural, understandable response to such a revelation. It is unbelief which is so preposterously without excuse as to make the one who does not believe judged forevermore. Because the evidence when laid out in front of us confronts us with two responses. We either believe it or we do not believe it. To believe is the most natural response. To look at the evidence and to say, yes, God has entered into human history. God has done this. This person who walked among us, Jesus of Nazareth, is God in human flesh. That's the natural response to the evidence. On the contrary, unbelief is so wicked, so without excuse, 
that men are judged because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. In fact, the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. So overwhelming is the evidence that the natural assumption is you would believe it and to disbelieve it makes you the most wicked of fools. That's hard to swallow, isn't it? But that is the choice that is given to us in John chapter 5. We believe these things and we are without excuse if we do not believe these things. And God has entered into human history and indeed creation, the prophets, the scriptures, His actions, His miracles, everything He said, John the Baptist, all of it bends itself to lend testimony to this reality that God has entered into human history. Now, Jesus made those claims in John chapter 5 in the first half of what we call the Divine Son Discourse. He knew that He was making those claims to a hostile audience, people who were trying to kill Him, who accused Him of breaking the Sabbath and accused Him of blasphemy because He made Himself out to be the Son of God. So Jesus lines up, as it were, four witnesses, four four sources of independent testimony who all testify to the reality of His claims. And you remember we covered last week the first of those four witnesses. It was John the Baptist. Now we have three more to cover, and we're only going to cover the second one today, and that is the miracles that Jesus performed. Those are the four, there are four, four testimonies, four witnesses. John the Baptist, the works that Jesus did, the miracles, the Father's direct testimony, and then the witness of the Scriptures. Those four things testify that God has entered into this world. John the Baptist, the works, the testimony of the Father, and the testimony of the Holy Scriptures. Four unimpeachable, strong witnesses that testify that God has entered into human history. So today we're going to be looking at verse 36. The testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. There are four different witnesses, and in one sense they are all independent of one another. John is an independent witness from the Scriptures and from the Father and from the from the uh, miracles that Jesus did. But in another sense, they are all connected because it is the Father, remember, who is testifying through all four of these sources. It is the Father who testified through John the Baptist. John the Baptist bore the testimony that the Father wanted him to. The miracles were the works of the Son, but really the works of the Father also. It was the miracles that the Father had given to the Son and that the Father did through the Son. And the Father's direct testimony is also the Father's testimony, obviously, and then the Scriptures of the Father's testimony. So in one sense, they're all related. In another sense, they're four independent witnesses. Notice also, and this I think is significant, all four of these testimonies, all four of these witnesses, are four different types of testimony, four different types of witnesses. Jesus could have just quoted four prophets, Isaiah, Daniel, Malachi, and Zechariah. And he could have said, all four of these independent prophets testify of me, and here's what they have said. He could have done that. But all of that would have been prophetic testimony. Or Jesus could have quoted four different passages from the Old Testament. A passage from the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. A passage from the Psalms. A passage from or two from the prophets. And all of that would have been four different sources of testimony. But it all would have been the same type of testimony. Written testimony. But notice that these four witnesses that Jesus calls are four different types of witnesses. One is prophetic. One is miraculous, one is divine, and one is written. It's almost as if we are sitting in a court of law and we are given eyewitness testimony and written testimony and videotaped testimony and photographic testimony and circumstantial evidence. He's laying it all out before us and saying, all of these types of things testify to me. The prophetic witness, John the Baptist, the written witness of the Scriptures, the Father's testimony Himself, that is divine testimony, and the miracles that I do. And today we're looking at the miracles. Now we've seen miracles in John, haven't we? 
Do you remember the miracles we've looked at so far? Three signs, really I would say four, because I count the cleansing of the temple as a sign, even though it's typically not considered a miracle. Though when we went through it, I did suggest to you there was something supernatural going on that one man could herd all of that out of that massive complex. So we have the turning of water into wine in chapter 2, the cleansing of the temple at the end of chapter 2, the healing of the nobleman's son at the end of chapter 4, and the healing of the paralytic in the pool of Bethesda at the beginning of chapter 5. Now here we get to chapter 5, in the last half of the Divine Son Discourse, and the Lord tells us what the purpose of miracles are. You ever wonder why were miracles done by Jesus, by the apostles, by the Old Testament prophets and Old Testament folks? There is a purpose to miracles. It's very narrow. It's very specific in the plan of God. And here we have Jesus teaching us what that is. So let's look at the miraculous testimony. Jesus says, verse 36 again, and I want you to hear this because if, if you have an NIV, I want you to listen carefully to what I read, and I want you to pay attention to what the NIV says because there's a translation difference that's significant enough that I, I want to draw your attention to it. Verse 36, the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. Now, if you have an NIV in your lap, here's how the NIV reads. So now, if you have something other than an NIV, I want you to compare the NIV reading. No, I want you to compare what you're reading to what I'm about to give you from the NIV. The NIV reads this, I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the very work that the Father has given me to finish, and which I am doing, testifies that the Father has sent me. Now, it differs in two ways, and I think in an attempt to make it readable, the NIV has sort of downplayed something that is significant, and in fact, unintentionally, I think that they have downplayed something that the Lord was intent, intending to upplay, as it were. He's trying to emphasize something, and the translation of the NIV kind of misses it a little bit. Here's how it misses it. There are two distinct differences. First, the NIV uses the, the word work, singular, as opposed to plural. The very work that I do, singular, as opposed to plural. Why is that significant? Well, for one, the Greek is plural, but also Jesus is drawing attention to miracles, individual miracles that he had done. Those were the works, plural, that he is talking about. He's not talking about the work of, say, coming into the world and growing up and living among people and traveling and preaching and teaching and doing miracles. He's not talking about the general vocation of God or just what the Father gave him to do as one lump sum. He is calling out specifically those works, the miracles, the signs that the Father had given him to do, which bore testimony or witness to him. So it's the works, the signs. The second significant difference is that in the NIV it only mentions work one time, and actually in the Greek it is emphasized twice. Twice, It is the works that the Father has given me to do. The very works that I do bear witness of me. Now, Jesus is stressing something. Now maybe the NIV just included it once because they didn't want to be redundant. But the text is redundant. Because Jesus is emphasizing something. And what is he emphasizing? The signs. The works. And that's significant in the context. Why? Because the beginning of the chapter contained a what? A work. A sign. It's a miracle. Here these men were confronted by the paralytic at the pool whom Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. That was a sign, a work, a miracle, a supernatural activity, a healing. And this was in front of them. And they are responding to that specific thing with unbelief. And Jesus is calling their attention back to it. The works. The works, the miracles, the signs. You ought to be looking at the signs and discerning something from those signs. Those signs indicate that the Father has sent me and He has given me a work and they testify about the reality of the claims that I'm making to you. So that's why it's significant. Now let's look at what Jesus said. We're going to learn a couple of things about miracles from verse 36. First, we're going to learn that miracles, 
the witness of miracles is greater than the witness of John. Look at verse 36, the beginning of it. The testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. What testimony or what witness was it that Jesus is speaking of that is greater, weightier, more significant than the testimony of John? It is the miracles. Now, if you were to put on a scale, as it were, an imaginary one, the testimony of John the Baptist on one side, and the miracles and the signs that Jesus performed on the other side, which side would pull down? Which is weightier? Which is greater? The testimony of John or the miracles? It is the miracles. There's a reason for that. But it's weightier, weightier or greater than the testimony of John for a number of different reasons. John's testimony was only the testimony of a mere man, and it was spoken testimony. And I don't mean to downplay the act of the prophet or the preaching of a prophet, but it is not weighty testimony in the way that a miracle is weighty testimony. The testimony of John is a prophetic testimony, but it's merely a spoken testimony. The testimony of a miracle, there is something about a miracle that is convincing. Convincing. When Jesus performed a sign, it was right in front of everybody, and it spoke volumes. Volumes. It is by nature a more convincing testimony than John's. It is also a supernatural, and it is demonstrably supernatural, as opposed to John's testimony. Now, John's testimony was supernatural in the sense that it came from the Father, but he was a voice of one crying in the wilderness, simply a proclaimer. He spoke, and he preached the message. But a miracle, when a miracle happens, you know that something supernatural is taking place, and it is demonstrably supernatural, so it's weightier in that sense. It's also unarguable, a miracle. Do you know that if the critics and opponents, those hostile to Jesus, if they could have proved that his miracles were frauds, fakes, just stage show illusions, that they would have done that? If they could have proved that, they would have. They would have shut him up forever and discredited him as just a, an illusionist, a stage show hypnotist, somebody, some huckster out uh, selling his snake oil. They would have discredited him forever, but they could not do that. They could not argue with his miracles. They may have said of the testimony of John, look, about John, we're not quite sure. We thought we were sure. We sent people to him to ask of him. Everybody's going after John. We were convinced maybe he was Elijah, the prophet or the Christ for a period of time. But now that he has identified the Messiah, we're just, we're not, right guys, we're just, we're uncertain about John. That's our official position. We're not taking a position on John the Baptist. We need time to figure it out. Maybe he's got this wrong. Maybe he is a lunatic after all. We just have an unofficial position. They could have said that about John the Baptist. They never could say that about the miracles. In John chapter 11, after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, they convened a council of the Pharisees, some of the very same ones that he's addressing here, and you know what they said? What are we doing? If this man continues performing signs like this, everybody's going to believe in him. We have to do something. Now, they could discredit his miracles, and they criticized his miracles. Did you do that on the Sabbath? You can't do that on the Sabbath. That's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Don't we have some Torah regulation about that on the Sabbath? Get out our scrolls. Let's find out what he's violating. This is unacceptable on the Sabbath. They criticized his miracles. They attributed his miracles to Satan. You do what you do by the power of Beelzebub. And Jesus quickly turned that on its head and said, why would Satan send me to cast out his own demons? That doesn't make any sense. I can't be doing this by the power of Satan. So they argued with his miracles. They criticized his miracles. They attributed his miracles to Satan, but they never denied that he did miracles. And they knew that he did miracles, and it was so patently obvious to everybody that he did miracles that all they could try and do for doing the miracles was to kill him. Now let me ask you this question. Did John the Baptist ever perform a single miracle? Do you know? 
did John the Baptist ever perform a miracle? John chapter 10, verse 41, the crowd said of John the Baptist, though this man performed no sign, everything he said about this man, Jesus, is true. John the Baptist performed no sign. He never cast out a demon. He never turned water into wine. He never healed anybody. He never made the lame to walk. I think that there is a reason for that. The reason being is because John came to bear witness to another who had performed the signs. And he was not supposed to draw attention to himself. John's motto was, I must decrease and he must increase. And any sign that John would have done would have caused people to cling to him even longer than they did. And John didn't want that. He wanted to prepare the people through a preaching, a baptism of repentance to the people so that he would prepare them for the Messiah. And when the Messiah would come, John would point to the Messiah and then step back into the shadows and let people detach themselves from John and attach themselves to the true Messiah. If John had performed signs, people would have clung to him and missed the Messiah. And yet, and this is key, the Pharisees, back in chapter 1, verse 19, sent a delegation to John to say, Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Or are you the prophet? And John denied all of those. I'm not the Christ, I'm not Elijah, and I'm not the prophet. And yet John performed no signs, and the Pharisees were willing to say of John, maybe he's the one. Perhaps he's the one. Maybe he is the Christ. But when John identified the true Christ, who was performing signs, what did they do? They didn't even pay as much attention to Jesus as they had to John. Without any signs, the Pharisees were willing to concede that perhaps John the Baptist was the Christ. But when the true light came and performed signs in their midst, they rejected him outright. That is evidence of the hard human heart. John's witness was a faithful witness. It was an unflinching witness, an unfailing witness. He did exactly what God had called him to do. He was the greatest man born of a woman up to that time, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, the culmination of all the Old Testament prophecy and prophets. He was the greatest of all of them because he got to stand in the presence of the one whom all the Old Testament anticipated and point to the arrival of that one and then to step back. He got to stand there and actually proclaim in the presence of the Messiah, here he is. That Jeremiah and Isaiah and Daniel and Malachi never got to do. John was the greatest, and Jesus said, But there is a witness and a testimony that's greater than John, and it is the miracles that I do. It is the signs that I perform among you. And those signs were to indicate that Jesus was sent from the Father. The word sent is repeated all the way through the passage. You see it in verse 23. It was the Father who sent him at the end of verse 23. You see it again in verse 24 where Jesus says, If you hear my word and believe him who sent me, You'll have eternal life. Verse 30 ends with the the phrase, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 36, again in this verse, that the Father has sent me. These are the signs they testify that the Father has sent the Son. Verse 37, and the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. Verse 38, you don't have his word abiding in you. You do not believe him whom he sent. And then down in verse 43, says, I have come. All the way through the passage, Jesus is emphasizing this. The signs ought to indicate to you that I have been sent by the Father to accomplish always and only the will of the Father. And the miracles themselves are evidence that I am who I am and I do what I do only by the power of God since I always accomplish only and always the will of the Father. The miracles were evidence that He was sent from God. Now here is Jesus' own testimony about the purpose of miracles. Why do we have miracles in the New Testament? Old Testament and New Testament. Why are there miracles? What was the purpose of miracles? Miracles were not... Listen, miracles were not mere raw demonstrations of divine power. 
God was not in performing miracles merely showing off His strength or His ability to part seas and and, uh, create food out of nothing. That's not why the miracles were done. Miracles were not done to sort of hype people up right before the offering. That's not the purpose of miracles. Miracles were not done just simply to impress us. Miracles have a very narrow and a very specific purpose in God's plan. Miracles serve to authenticate the messenger. Now, it's been several years, I think three, maybe four, since we got out of the book of Acts, and we had two one-hour sessions on the purpose of miracles. Why were there miracles? In the book of Acts, we saw the reason for miracles, the reason Jesus and the apostles were able to do miracles, was because it authenticated the messenger. Miracles serve to authenticate the messenger. When you saw a messenger from God saying, I speak for God, and here is the proof. I am able to do signs and wonders in your midst. That authenticated the messenger, that the message that the messenger was bearing was in fact true. Miracles were an authentication of the message and the messenger. In Jesus' own thinking, he says, the miracles that I have done before you are evidence that I have been sent by the Father. That is an authentication of both his message and the messenger itself, Jesus. And his message was, I am God in human flesh, and if you will believe on me, you will have eternal life. And if you refuse me, you will suffer eternal judgment. That was his message. What was the proof that his message was true? It was the miracles that he did. All the way through the Gospel of John, by the way, time and again we see Jesus pointing to the miracles as evidence that he is who he claimed to be and that he was able to do what he was claiming he was able to do. Back in John chapter 3, Verse 2, Nicodemus came to Jesus and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher sent from God, for no man can do what you do unless God is with him. And there is Nicodemus speaking on behalf of other Pharisees who were saying, we know, we know that you are come from God because the signs that you do bear witness to the fact that you have come from God. The Pharisees understood the purpose of miracles. The miracles indicated that the one who was doing them was sent by God. Look over in John chapter 10 real quick. I want you to look at just a couple of passages in the Gospel of John. We won't go outside of John. John chapter 10, verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. These testify of me. They ought to have believed because of the works. Look at John 10, verse 37. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. The works were the evidence that the Father was in Him doing the works themselves. Look at John 14, verse 11. John 14, verse 11, just two more references. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. John 15, verse 24. And this, I think, is significant. Now, I want you to contrast John 3, 2. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher sent from God, because nobody can do the signs that you do unless unless God has sent him. Contrast that with 15, verse 24. Jesus said, If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my Father as well. Now why was the rejection of Jesus the rejection of the Father? Because back at the beginning of John's Gospel, they confessed, We know that you come from the Father because you do the works. And Jesus continued to do the works and to lay those out as evidence. And at the very end of his life, on the night when he was betrayed, on the night before the crucifixion, he said, they have seen me, they have seen the works, and they have rejected me and my Father. Because in rejecting Jesus, the Pharisees knew and the Jews knew. We are not just rejecting what we consider to be a wingnut from Nazareth. 
We are rejecting both the one who was sent and the one who sent them. And they were without excuse because they knew that what he did proved he was the Messiah. And they still rejected him. They knew that what he did proved he was sent from God. And they willfully chose to say, we reject you and we hate you and we hate the one who sent you. That was their confession. Because the miracles were evidence that he was sent from God. Do you remember when John the Baptist was thrown into prison? He sent a delegation to Jesus and saying, are you the one or should we be waiting for another? A moment of doubt or maybe confusion at least. And how did Jesus respond to John the Baptist? Jesus said to him, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. What did Jesus quote as evidence that I am the one? All of the miracles that he did, and that was enough for John. The miracles that he did proved that he was who he claimed to be. That was proof in the Gospel of John. It was proof to John the Baptist. The number and the the scope and the type of miracles that Jesus did, there are over 36 miracles recorded in the Gospels. And that is by no means comprehensive. John chapter 2 makes reference to miracles that Jesus did in Jerusalem that caused the people to believe. John chapter 6 verse 2 makes mention of signs that he did, miracles that he performed on the sick that are not recorded. And John, at the end of his gospel, says many other things Jesus did which are not recorded in this book, and they're not recorded in the other gospels, that if they were recorded, the world could not contain the books that could be written. A bit of an overstatement, but we get the point. He did a lot more than what we have recorded here. Miracle after miracle, sign after sign, light after light, evidence after evidence, was laid out in front of them, and they saw them, and they knew these things prove that he is who he says he is. There's evidence of his divinity, evidence of his deity, and yet they rejected that. They rejected it because the human heart is hard. Well, now you say, but if miracles prove that Jesus was God and other people did miracles, then do the miracles also prove that the other people were God? It's a fair question, isn't it? If the miracles prove that Jesus is God and other people like Paul and Peter and John and others did signs and did wonders, do those miracles and signs prove that they too are God or divine? No, here's the difference. Here's Jesus' claim. I'm the Son of Man, the Son of God. I'm God in human flesh. I'm equal to the Father. I am the Son of David. I am the Messiah. I am the second person of the Trinity in human flesh. That was essentially his claim. He laid claim to all of the attributes of deity. And he said the miracles bear witness to the fact that what I am saying is true. Now what did the apostles say? The apostles said he is God. He is the Son of Man. He's the Son of God. He's God in human flesh. And the miracles that they did bore witness to the fact that what they said was true. Because miracles authenticate the messenger. And miracles are evidence that what the messenger is saying is indeed true. The disciples pointed to Jesus as the Son of God. Jesus pointed to himself as the Son of God. And the signs in both cases were evidence that what they said was from God. They were sent from God as messengers of God. And what they said was true. See, basically, here's the arguments that miracles prove. Or here's the, here's the arguments that, here's the argument that miracles are making. If Jesus was a liar, if he was a lunatic, if he was a huckster, then he would not have been able to do what he did. Why? Because the ability to perform a supernatural act is a divine act, a supernatural act, and God must empower it. God must allow it. God must be behind the type of miracles that Jesus did. They were not false signs and wonders. They were not tricks. They were manifestly supernatural. The ability to do those was evidence that the Father was doing the works through Him. That's why Jesus said, I can't do anything on my own initiative. What I do, I do not do under my own power, but what I do is the Father working through me. So the very fact that I'm able to do these things is evidence that I am, in fact, God. 
God does not authenticate false doctrine. God does not authenticate with signs and wonders false doctrine. That is why heretic Benny Hinn does not perform true signs and wonders. Why is that? He can get up on stage and do all of his little tricks and lengthen legs and cause people in wheelchairs to get up and stumble off of the stage. Those are not true signs and wonders. How do I know that Benny Hinn is not performing true signs and wonders? Because God does not give his stamp of authenticity to a heretic, to somebody whose theology is a dog's breakfast. God does not do that. He does not authenticate false doctrine and false teachers. There's a whole movement in Christianity today that says we need to have signs like Jesus and the apostles did today. The reason the gospel spread from Jerusalem to the farthest reaches of the Roman Empire in 30 years is because Jesus and the apostles did signs. And so they came into area and they performed signs and wonders and it impressed the people. And the people readily received the gospel because they were impressed by the signs. So if we want to see the gospel spread in our day, we need to get back to what the early church was doing and performing signs and wonders like Jesus and the apostles did, and that will make people respond and receive the message. That's called the Third Wave Movement or the Latter Rain Movement. It's made popular by guys like C. Peter Wagner and George Otis Jr. and others who believe that and teach that. That is wrong. That is patently wrong. Miracles did not perform that function. If God were authenticating messengers today, I will tell you who would be doing miracles. John MacArthur would be doing miracles. R.C. Sproul would be doing miracles. D. James Kennedy would be doing miracles. James, well, he wouldn't be doing miracles now because he's dead. James Montgomery Boyce would have been doing miracles. Martin Lloyd-Jones would have done miracles. These men would have performed miracles because they preached the true gospel. I have yet, I have yet to find one person who claims to have the ability to perform signs and to perform wonders and to heal people whose theology is even remotely orthodox. I have yet to find one who even knows the gospel and would know the gospel and recognize the gospel if he stumbled into it. I have yet to find one. God does not authenticate false doctrine and he does not authenticate heretics by giving them the ability to perform signs. Look at the theology, not the signs. Jesus performed true signs and it was evidence that God has given his stamp of authenticity to his son, This is my beloved son. Hear him. Listen to him. I have sent him. Bear witness. I am bearing witness to him through the signs. That was the purpose and the role of signs. Now, miracles have one limitation. They don't create faith. Miracles don't create faith in anybody. They can't create faith. These Pharisees had seen the the paralytic walk. They saw him carrying his bed on the Sabbath. They knew he had laid by the pool of Bethesda. For 38 years, sick, waiting for somebody to throw him in. They knew this man. They knew of his condition. And carrying his pallet, his bed, through the crowd on the Sabbath uh, uh, sparked their attention, caused them to sort of look at this. They saw that. They noticed it. They knew what Jesus had done. And they confronted Jesus with it. You're healing on the Sabbath. You're breaking the Sabbath. And they called Jesus on the carpet. Did they believe? They didn't believe. They knew of the miracles Jesus did in John chapter 2. Maybe they knew of the healing of the nobleman's son. They certainly knew of the healing of the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. And in, face, in the face of all of those miracles, they still did not believe because miracles do not create faith. A hard-hearted, darkened-hearted individual can watch miracle after miracle after miracle and still disbelieve. Look at the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. They can still disbelieve. Look at the Pharisees of Jesus' time. They saw all of the miracles and they said, He's doing the miracles. We have to kill him or everybody will believe upon him. Miracles do not, cannot create faith. They do not create belief. 
They can serve to harden the hard human heart, but they cannot create belief. What is the reason for unbelief? Friends, it is never due to a lack of evidence. I don't care what an atheist, an agnostic, a skeptic ever says to you, unbelief is never due to a lack of evidence. Get that sentence down in your head. Unbelief is never due to a lack of evidence. It is always due to a love for darkness. And occasionally you will find an atheist who will be honest and say, look, I don't believe because I love my sin and I want to do what I want to do and I don't want to give it up. That's why I don't believe. They lie when they say, God has not given me enough evidence. That's a lie. They know it. You know it. Everybody knows it. God has given them a universe full of evidence. They deny it and suppress the truth and unrighteousness because unbelief is never due to a lack of evidence. It is always due to a love for darkness. I heard of a debate between an atheist and a Christian, and the atheist was going on and on and on saying, "Uh, God has not given us enough evidence. There's not enough evidence. God hasn't shown himself to me. Where's the evidence? We don't have enough evidence. On and on with this line of thinking. It's David Hume's famous argument that if I stand in the presence of God and there is a God, the first thing I'm going to ask him is, why didn't you give us any evidence of your existence? Ignorant, of course, that the universe is full of evidence. So this Christian in the debate said to the atheist, what type of evidence, what kind of evidence, what nature of evidence would be sufficient? And the atheist said, maybe if God were to appear to me and show himself to me and say, here I am, I exist, then I would believe. And the Christian rightly responded by saying, If God were to appear to you, you would not come to Christ. You would go to a psychiatrist. And that's true. Why is that? Because no amount of evidence and no type of evidence is sufficient to convince somebody who hates the light and loves darkness. Because the problem with unbelief, the issue at the heart of unbelief, is not a lack of evidence. It is not an intellectual problem. It is a moral problem. It is a spiritual problem. Because the human heart is dark in its unbelief. And that is the case with the Pharisees in John chapter 5. Now, did they, have, uh, did they have adequate and unimpeachable witnesses to the testimony that what Jesus said was true? They did. They had the testimony of John the Baptist. And what did they do with John the Baptist? Trust him? Embrace him? Receive his message? Or did they reject him? They rejected him. Then they had a second witness, and that was the testimony of the miracles themselves. And what did they do with the miracles when they saw them laid out in front of them? Embrace it? Accept it? Or did they reject it? They rejected that. Now compare that, my friends, with the response of the Samaritans. Jesus performed no sign in Samaria. And the woman believed and he went into the village and the village people believed and they trusted him and took him at his word without a sign. Now here's the condemnation of the self-righteous Jews of Jesus' day. They saw the miracles, they heard John, and they rejected in the face of all of that light. But Jesus has a even more unimpeachable witness, an even weightier witness than the miracles and even weightier than John, and that is the divine testimony of God Himself, the voice from heaven. And guess what they're going to do with that? They're going to reject that as well. Why? Because the problem is not and never is a lack of evidence. It is a moral problem. It is a love for darkness. That is why people remain in unbelief. Let's pray together. Our Father, we rejoice in Your Word and the things that we learn from it. We thank You for this time that we have had. These things truly feed our soul and remind us again of how awesome you are, how magnificent you are, the fact that you have come into this world which was in darkness and you have brought the light of life. That light has been shown to all men and the problem with us is that, uh, the problem with those who do not believe is that they do not believe because of their love for darkness. We pray, O oh God, that if there are people sitting, sitting here today who love that darkness and do not turn to the sun, that you would show them that their problem is a moral one and that they would repent of their sin, put their faith in the Son of God, 
and receive the light of life. We thank you for your precious truths. We thank you that you have shown us the light of your word and of your son and that you have brought us to faith in yourself. Magnify and glorify yourself through us. In our response to these truths, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.